Luke chapter 7. Last week we started a series of messages where we are going to travel through the occasions in the book of Luke where Jesus eats, where he has a meal, where he dines with people. And the purpose of that is to figure out what he was teaching in those moments. As we talked about last week, that Jesus was someone who came not only with a distinct purpose in mind, that he had come to seek and to save that which was lost, but he came with a very purposeful method in mind. And one of the tools he used over and over again was that he ate with people. And in the midst of the meal, he would have a discussion or a teaching moment with them. Now, if you look at, uh, and I kind of flew around this last week or kind of talked around it a little bit. If you look at our culture, we have seen a drastic decline in the amount of time we're spending around the table together. There has been in the last three decades a 33% decrease in the amount of meals that families eat around the table. And half of the people that eat those meals, that's not even really good to describe it around the table because half of those people that are still eating or families that are still eating together are eating their meals now in front of the television. The average meal time has gone from almost an hour to 20 minutes. Last week I mentioned a challenge to you at the end of the message, at the end of the Uh, morning as we were getting ready to leave, and I believe, based on the response that I got, that this statistic is also true, that there has been an almost 50% decline in the amount of times we entertain people in our own home. I, I mean, at the end of the service last week, I just mentioned sometime in the next six weeks having a dinner party, and it was like I had asked some of you to go to the moon. Oh, my goodness. I mean, in this room, it's rare that I get any kind of reaction, positive or negative. I mean, Glenn will occasionally give me an amen. If Alan's in and able to be here, I get some amen. Some of you will do some nods or some uh-huhs or some ouches. I don't know what that means. But when I said, just host a dinner, <gasps> there were audible gasps. When I was growing up, We had people at our house once a week, and it wasn't, are we going to? It was, who are we going to? Now, we live in a different society. But that doesn't mean that that meal isn't an important part of who we are. And for Jesus in his day, meals were vital. You see, to them, they didn't have fast food restaurants. Now, this is one of the indictments on me, all right? This morning, I, uh, as is my normal routine, I get up before anybody else in the house. I try to get here early so that I can get my mind around of what we're doing, so I can pray through some things, so that I can pray for you. I can have the Lord uh, pray for me that the, that the Lord would speak in these moments. And uh, on the way, I don't have time to get, to get breakfast ready, and I'm trying not to wake the house up, and so I stop on the way. And I stop at McDonald's. For a couple of reasons. One is, it's on the way. And secondly, I just really like the sausage McMuffin with egg. And so this morning, I drove through and 
as I was as I ordered, I got to the pay window and the girl at the pay window said, don't you ever get tired of eating the same thing every week? Now, that just told me that she knows who I am and she knows what I eat. So I guess I'm just going to drive up and go, I'll have the regular. All right. So we live in a society that is just accessible. Now, Jesus lived in a society where meals were big deal. And we're looking over these weeks at those moments that he spent around the table. Now, last week we, we spent some time talking about Levi and, and how Levi invited him into his home and then what Jesus taught the Pharisees through that. And to be honest, today is going to be a similar lesson, but he's going to ramp up the intensity on the Pharisee and what he understands. We used this verse last week and I wanted to use it again. It's from Luke chapter 7, verse 34. And it's actually in a description where Jesus is basically saying, you're not responding to anything. You don't listen to the Lord anymore. And he says, John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine, but he came living a teetotaler life. He never did anything. And you said, he has a demon. And then I come. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus came as his method eating and drinking. And as he sat around the table with these people, he would impart lessons to them. And we come in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, where Luke intentionally, I believe, places another story of him eating and drinking to prove a point. Luke chapter 7 verse 36 says this. And today we're going to kind of walk through this passage. And here is the overriding message I want you to get today. This is the one thing that if you walk away from here, I want you to remember. It's a simple statement and it's a warning. And it's simply this. Religion is harmful to your health. Religion is harmful to your health. You've seen various products out there with surgeon general warnings. This product may be hazardous to your health. What Jesus is going to teach in this meal is that religion is harmful to your health. Here's the saying. One of the Pharisees invited him to eat with them. Now, it's an interesting kind of thing here because the Pharisees were kind of a group of people that would have been seen as um, religious people, holy people. Um, They would have been people that that probably had normal jobs. They they weren't priests. They weren't people that necessarily that, that worked at the temple all the time. They would have had normal jobs, but they would have been seen as people that were doing as much as they could to be religious and clean and holy. And Jesus has been eating with sinners and tax collectors. And suddenly one of the Pharisees, we don't know the motives, we don't know the reason. Perhaps it's because they were trying to trick him. Perhaps they were getting more evidence. Perhaps they were collecting more information. Perhaps this one generally wanted to see what he had to say. But whatever the reason, a Pharisee invites. And as Jesus does in the gospel, when someone invites him, he says, yes. And it says he entered the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. 
Now, most, uh, most wealthier people in that day and time would have had an area where they ate that would have kind of been a formal setting and, and would have been a place where specifically uh, Pharisees would have had uh, a big, long meal that had discussion woven throughout it. And Pharisees would get together and they would have theological discussions. It would almost be like a, a theological panel would have been going on. And while they were eating, they would have been in an area where people could walk up and listen, where people could see. It may have been in an open area. There may have been some windows there. There may have been some opportunity for people to see. And there would have been three sides of the table that they would have had someone on. They would have had tables down three sides. And they would have left an open area for people to come and view. Now, unlike our day, they would have had tables that were pretty low to the ground. And as those tables were low to the ground, the way that they would eat is that they would recline on their elbow and they would eat with their feet out behind them. And so in this scene, Jesus is sitting around with the Pharisees and there is very little doubt what they are discussing. They're discussing Jesus. They're asking Him questions. There's theological debate that is happening. Verse 37. And I want you to picture this as it happens. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with the hair of her head, kissing them and anointing them with fragrant oil. So here's the scene. Jesus is reclining at the table. He is beginning to eat. And this notorious, sinful woman walks in. We're not given a name. We're not given what she's notorious for, although it's pretty safe to assume that it's really bad stuff. The idea here behind the word, and she was a sinful woman, is that she was a really bad, sinful woman. I want you to picture her, this unholy lady, walking into the midst of the house filled with holy men. My guess is that she didn't walk in with her head held high. She didn't walk in proudly. She just had a mission to get to Jesus. She may have entered the house with her head down and her shoulders bent over. She was carrying this alabaster flask, and the alabaster flask, back in those days, perfume was kept in precious stone or jars that, that didn't have a, a cork you could take off the top and pour a little bit out and then cork it back up. It was one of those things that was an all-or-nothing kind of deal. An alabaster flask would have been worth a lot of money. The, the oil inside, the 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 perfume inside would have been worth a lot of money. There's only a few ways a woman like that could get a flask of perfume like that and none of them were honorable. And as she walked in, she's carrying this flask and I believe her sole intention was to break that flask and anoint Jesus. To place it there. Now, let me just ask you a quick question. In biblical times, how did most people get anointed? Where did you pour the oil? On their head. 
And so I believe as she walked in and she got to Jesus, she noticed something. And she walked up to the table. And as she went to complete her mission, she noticed that the feet protruding from where Jesus was sitting were stained and dirty and soiled. If you were having a guest to your house, don't you... Don't you kind of make a big deal about the guest at your house? I mean, don't you try to clean up the house a little bit to make sure the house is okay? I mean, if you just trash the house and say, oh, they'll deal with it. Not in my house, all right? That doesn't happen. If we've got family or friends coming in or coming over, there is dedicated time. We pull out appliances to clean that might not have been pulled out for a few weeks. Amen? And when the guest gets there, do you serve them first? Or you just say, I'm getting mine, they can get their own, whatever. Well, you, you honor the guest, right? Well, in their day and time, there were a few ways you honored the guest that came to your house. The first way was if they came in and they had been walking a distance, you had a servant wash their feet. Now, if you didn't have a servant wash their feet... the you at least gave them a basin of water to do that. Back in those days, they walked among streets and they didn't have paved roads back then. They had roads that were packed down where people would walk. They were dusty roads. They shared the roads with animals. And so when animals share the roads, animals share the roads. You wore open-toed sandals all the time. And so on a road that is shared among multitudes of humans and animals, when you walk the road, your feet got nasty. And as this woman approaches Jesus, she realizes that they hadn't even extended basic courtesy to Him. And then something happens that I don't think she expected. The closer she got to Jesus, the more she realized the sinfulness in her own life. And as she approaches the Master, she begins to cry. Now, to be honest, crying is not an accurate depiction of what she does. Some of you are criers. Some of you are not. This woman was a crier. And as she got closer and closer and closer to Jesus, the well of her heart began to overflow. Martin Luther said that the tears that come out of her eyes are heart water. She realizes the closer she gets the sinfulness of her life and she can't do anything but just weep at the feet of Jesus. Here's how we know that she wept and didn't just cry a little bit. There are enough tears coming from her face to wash the feet of Jesus. And as she gets closer, and I I want you to get this image in your mind. These men are around. They've been having this theological discussion. She kind of, I think, sneaks in. Not where they can't see her, but, but she's coming in and she's got her hand out. And she sees the feet and she weeps over the fact that this, this man, this great teacher, this great one has come. Her sin is so great and nobody has taken care of the most basic needs he has. 
And she weeps. And then she looks around and there's not a towel anywhere to be found. And so she undoes her hair. And she takes her hair and she begins to wipe his feet. Now, first of all, understand this. Not biblically, but culturally, a woman like her was never, ever to touch a man like Jesus. Ever. Secondly, understand that Paul would later say that a woman's hair is her glory. So she was taking her glory and she was using it in the most menial task. Third, in their day and age, what she did was scandalous. The Talmud, which is kind of a Jewish commentary on life, said that if a woman let her hair down in the presence of a man other than her husband, it was grounds for divorce. The idea, this is culturally, this is not biblically, it was their cultural religious tradition that a woman who let her hair down was equivalent to a woman who took her top off. It was scandalous. But his feet had to be washed. And then she completes the act for which she came. The bottle of perfume would have cost the equivalent of almost probably a year's labor. It was expensive. It wasn't like you could go down to Macy's and get you a bottle. And she takes it and she breaks it and she anoints not his head, but his feet. I believe that in that moment, she felt, I am no longer worthy to look him in the eye. I'm no longer worthy to attempt to put this on his head. She just broke it and anointed his feet. It was extravagant. It was passionate. People would see it as wasteful, as misplaced. But here was a woman notorious for her sin washing and anointing the feet of Jesus. Let's just be honest in this place for a minute. If someone did whatever our cultural equivalent to that is in worship today, there would be many of you who would be very uncomfortable. If someone were to worship the Lord Jesus Christ in this place in a way that is equal to that in passion and in price and in extravagance, there would be some of you in this room today who would be very uncomfortable. And yet, you wouldn't be alone. Because Simon says, actually, he doesn't say, he thinks. Because sometimes religious people are really good at thinking things, but they're good about holding them back so they can kind of keep them to themselves to the exact right moment where they can get the most impact. And so he thinks in his mind, if Jesus knew, I mean, if he knew who she, I mean, really, if he knew 
who this woman was. And he can't be a prophet. Because if he's not a prophet, I mean, if he's a prophet, he would know. And if he was a prophet and he knew, he would never let her in this place, much less touch him with her hair. Oh. We were right about him. We gave him a chance. He never says that, but he thinks it. And Jesus is going to teach the Pharisees around that table three very important lessons about how religion is harmful to your health. And the first one is this. Is that religion prevents you from realizing your own sinfulness. So Simon thinks that in his head. He thinks, listen, if he he just knew. And Jesus said, Simon, Simon, hey, get out of your head. Come here, right here. I got something to say to you. And basically what he's going to say is, I'm going to prove to you right here I'm a prophet because not only do I know her sin, I know your thoughts. Simon, this way. He said, I got something to say to you. Simon says, well, go ahead, say it, teacher. What you got? Let me know. Verse 41 says that Jesus tells a quick parable. A creditor has two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, a denarii was a, a day's labor. And so you've got somebody that owes a year and a half of wages versus somebody that owes a month and a half of wages. Neither one of them can pay it back. So he graciously says, both of you are clear. Which one of them will love him more? Simon answered. <laughs> it's kind of elementary here, Jesus. I mean, I, what, I understand. I, I guess the one who, I guess the one that had more forgiven. Now, here's what Jesus does in this masterful, very simple parable. Is he says this. You come to this place where you consider her unholy, unclean, and yourself holy and clean. And one of the things that happens when we become religious is that we begin to base our worth on how much we do, on how good we are, on what we have accomplished. And we can easily look outside of ourselves on the external things that are happening and say, look how much better I am than those people. And he begins to get this understanding from Jesus that, listen, you have wrongly classified who you are. There are two types of people in this world. There are holy and unholy. But here's the deal. The only one that is holy is me. And everyone else is unholy. Can you imagine... I mean, some of you are are done with car payments and house payments. You've got all that paid off, but... But some of you can remember, if you're done with that, and some of us live out the monthly statement. And on that monthly statement, it tells us how much we still owe. Maybe it's a credit card statement. Maybe it's a car payment. Maybe it's a house payment. And it says you owe this much. Imagine, if you will, if you got a statement from the Lord every month. Here's where you fell down last month. Here are the thoughts that you thought that you shouldn't have. Here's the 
remember when I told you to talk to that person and the Holy Spirit kind of prompted you and you, you just kept on? Or, you know, there was a time when there was somebody I placed in your path and you were too busy looking at your phone to even think about what that person needed and you just kept on walking by. Or what about the time when you said that about your friend that you really shouldn't have said? Or you said that about somebody on TV or somebody that you know? You, you said that about somebody and you really shouldn't have said that? It, it had two columns, the sin of commission, the things that you did bad, and the sins of omission, those things in your life that you should have done that you didn't. Can you imagine if every month you got a running total? What Jesus says to this Pharisee is, it doesn't matter what your sin debt is. you got a sin debt. Now, there's a, there's, a, there's a secondary story we're going to get to in just a minute that's taught in that parable. But the first parable part, or the first part of that parable is simply this. We all have a sin problem. And you, Simon the Pharisee, are no better than this sinful woman who has come into this room. Religion gives us this false sense of security. Think about every other religion in the world. It basically is a guide on how to get yourself right so that you can go to heaven. I mean, that's the kind of thing that men make up. The good people go to heaven and the bad people don't. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that we're all bad people. And only those that trust in the only one who has ever been good get to heaven. Religion prevents you from realizing your own sinfulness. Here's the second thing. Religion prevents you from seeing the needs of other people. Jesus is now going to redefine sin for him. He says, you've judged correctly, and then he turns to the woman. This whole time, he hasn't even looked at her, apparently. It doesn't give any appearance that, that Jesus has acknowledged her. She hasn't said anything. This has all been done as the kind of the back of the table. And as this woman's doing this, he looks at her and he says this to her. And then Jesus looks at the woman, and he says... To Simon, do you see this woman? He says to Simon, are you even looking at her? Or is she just a nameless face in the crowd? Do you really care about her? Or are you just concerned that you don't have to deal with her? He says, have you even seen what she's done? I walked into this house and you didn't even give me an opportunity to wash my feet. The most basic hospitable service you could have given to an honored guest. And yet she has washed my feet with her tears. You, I walked into this house. You didn't even greet me with a kiss, which was customary. It would be like a handshake today. It would be the customary greeting. You didn't do that. Yet she has not quit kissing my feet since she got here. I walked into this house. And you didn't give me any kind of oil on that day. They gave you oil just to freshen up. Because if your feet are dirty and your body is dirty, guess what? You stink. Or as the King James would say, you stinketh. And there is very little that is less appetizing than eating a large meal with people that stinketh. And so they gave you a little oil to freshen up. And he says, you didn't even do that. And she has broken this expensive perfume, and she has lavished it on me. You, Simon, are completely 
inconsiderate. Here's the crazy thing about the book of Luke. The more you read it, the more you see that religion is harmful and that religious people are cruel and inconsiderate. The truth is, that's true of some of us in this room. We're just inconsiderate. You're not a bad husband as far as... You're not committing adultery or you're not committing spousal abuse. You're just completely inconsiderate. That's true of church people. You're not intending to be upsetting or mean. You're just inconsiderate with one another. He says, Simon, you think that her sin, what she's done outside of this place, means that you are better than her. But she could teach you a lesson on being considerate. This would be on par with Jesus bringing a prostitute into the home of the Pope and saying, this woman could teach you some stuff about religion. Now, I say on par with because that's probably what she was. It would be like bringing a harlot into the home of the Dalai Lama and saying, listen, you talk about peace and tranquility... This woman's got it figured out. She needs to be your teacher. Jesus says, you don't even see other people. And the first thing she noticed when she walked in is that I haven't been taken care of. And here's the last thing that religion does. Religion prevents you from recognizing the presence of God. So they get through that little discourse. And then he says, but because of what she's done... Not really because of that. that. That is because of what had already been done for her. But just to let you know, her many sins... Notice Jesus does say many sins. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't say what she's been doing is okay. He doesn't say sin is okay. He doesn't say keep on doing what you're doing. He says her many sins. goes back to that parable, right? Her 500 days labor, that sin has been forgiven. It's done. It's canceled. And that's why she loves me so much. But that, they get a little forgiven, loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. No other religious leader in the history of the world says, I am God and your sins are forgiven. Not this is how you get your sins forgiven. Abraham didn't say that didn't say that I am God and your sins are forgiven. He said, I'm going to follow God. That's what you need to do. Moses didn't say that he was God. He said, let me point you to God. Jesus comes and he says, I am God and your sins are forgiven. And the guys around the table start to say, who can forgive sins? They start a theological debate. Instead of glorying in what is happening in their presence, they start a theological debate about what is right and what is wrong. Those around the table begin to say, who is this man who even forgives sin? And the obvious answer is, it is the Son of God. He is Messiah. He is King. This is God in the flesh. They're going down the right path, but they choose the wrong one when they get to the answer. Religion wants to debate it and think about it and just instead of just accepting, this is God. And they have the Lord Jesus Christ in their midst and they miss it. They miss it. 
Church, let me just be real honest with you. I think one of the real dangers of American Christianity today is that we are completely missing that relationship with God. And understanding who He is. We got all the religious stuff down pat. We know who belongs and who doesn't belong. We know what the list of sins are that are acceptable and the list of sins that are unacceptable. We know the people that can pull up a chair at our table and the people that will never be welcome. We know the programs that we have to have to be a good church, but we don't know the God that makes us a church. Religion misses the presence of God because you're so worried about the rules. Jesus turns to the woman and says, basically, your faith, is, your faith has healed you. Get out of here. You don't need these guys anymore. Turn your Bibles just a few chapters over to Luke chapter 15. We're going to close with this. In Luke 15, we see this pattern repeated that, that the sinners and the tax collectors are coming to Jesus. Remember last week I said the more reprehensible the person, the more they felt comfortable coming to Jesus. In verse 15, chapter, I mean, chapter 15, verse 1, and we often miss this in the light of the parables that follow. Most of you know that, that Luke 15 is the, the chapter of the three parables of the lost sheep where the, the, the shepherd loses one and he leaves the 99 to go find the one. And the parable of the lost coin where the woman turns her house over for what was seemingly insignificant in the scope of things. And then the parable of the prodigal son where he leaves His son leaves and he comes back and he throws a party. But in chapter 15, verse 1, we miss the setting. The setting is that the tax collectors and the sinners were approaching and listening to him and the Pharisees and the scribes are complaining, grumbling. Religion has blinded them. And it says, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And it says, so Jesus told them these parables. And here's what I believe that the purpose of these parables are, and I don't have time to go into a deep discussion of all of it, but I believe parables 1 and 2 set up parable 3, and that the 1 and 2 set up parable 3 so that the lesson to the Pharisees and the scribes can be given at the end of the parable that we often neglect. And so in chapter, in the first two, not chapter, but in the first two parables, he says, listen, even the most insignificant thing that is lost is worth saving, is worth finding, is worth going after. And so he's building the case, listen, it's okay, we are going after the sinners and the tax collectors because they are God's people and they need salvation. Look over towards the end of Luke chapter 15. And we have this parable of the lost son. I'm not going to go through it. You know it. He goes away. He asks for his inheritance. He leaves. He ends up in a pigsty working there. He's feeding himself or desiring to feed himself. Again, it turns on food. He desires to feed himself on the ponds of the, of the pigs. And he says, it's got to be better at home. So he leaves. And before he can get home with his made-up explanation to his dad, his apology, his dad, it says, goes and embraces him. And in verse 22, it says, quick, bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with the feast. Because the Son of Mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to party. Well, that's the Larson translation. They began to celebrate. And here's the point for the Pharisees of the whole chapter. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field as he came near the house. He heard music and dancing. So he asked one of the servants, what in the world is going on? And he says, your brother's home. 
Your dad's gone. He's got the calf. He's back. He's safe and he's sound. It's amazing. We're having a party. Isn't that great? Verse 28. And then the older brother did what? Became angry and didn't want to go in. His father came out and pleaded with him. Verse 28 is describing the heart of the Pharisees to Jesus' ministry at the moment. You don't want to come into the party. I'm pleading with you to come in. But he replied to his father and said, I've been slaving for you. I got religion. I've done all the rules and the regulations. I've done everything is right. I've been to church. I've sat in my pew. I've gone to Sunday school. I've served on committees. I've given. I've done all that stuff. You never gave me anything. But when this prodigal son of yours, this extravagantly wasteful son of yours comes home and has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughter the fattened calf for him. And the dad says, you have missed the boat. You've been here with me all the time. Anytime you wanted it, you could have had it. You've been building your whole life about following the rules when the answer is just recognize the relationship. Now, here's why I think that's important in Luke 15. And if you want to read a great book on this, and some of our women are going through it, it's called The Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. The point is that there are churches all across this land filled with older brothers who have built their life of comfort around the fact that they are following all the right rules. And yet they are blinded to their own sin. They're blinded to the needs of others. And they are missing out on a relationship with the Lord. Now let me ask you a question. Are you Simon in the story? Or are you the sinful woman at his feet? When was the last time you were overwhelmed with the realization of your own sinfulness? When was the last time you served someone who was in desperate need of Jesus? When was the last time you had meaningful time with the Lord? Have you built your life around the rules or have you built your life around the relationship? In just a moment, we're going to have invitation and for some of you, it's going to be an opportunity to respond. Perhaps you need to come and to pray. But for some of you, it's going to be a test. Because the truth is, if we have anyone come down this morning, if the Lord leads and people come and they come to this altar, and if someone were to come and even weep over their sin, some of you in this room are going to be tempted to be Simon right away. Well, I wonder what's happening in their life. Well, I would never go down there. I wouldn't want... I wouldn't, I wouldn't want other people to be talking about me. This woman didn't care. And the truth is, when you realize how much Jesus has done for you, there is nothing but gratitude and love in your heart. The second major point of that little parable he told about the debtor was to simply say, listen, when you realize the depth of the forgiveness that God has given you, you must respond in love, and service, and in giving. You know what concerns me about the American church? What concerns me about 
even our congregation, is that there are so many that claim a relationship with the Lord, and yet they hate serving, and they don't give, and they don't have any kind of joy in their lives. And if you say you've met Him, then those three things shouldn't be a part of who you are. 